Well, a few weeks ago, uh, Tom Brady announced that he was coming out of retirement to play another season of football with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Now, in the world of football, I know not everyone here follows football, but in the world of football, he is the GOAT, the greatest of all time. I, I would be surprised if we ever see someone in our lifetimes that has the kind of success that he has had in the NFL. And with that mantle, it comes with a lot of love and a lot of animosity. And when I saw that ESPN headline on my phone that he was coming out of retirement, I was like, you got to be kidding me, you know. And I had this twinge of resentment. Right? This guy, Tom Brady, is 44 years old, and he is still able to play football at the highest level. I mean, they didn't win the Super Bowl last year. They won it two years ago. Uh, at 40, my NFL career would last precisely through the first time that I was tackled, and it'd be done. I'd be out of it. I mean, this dude individually has won seven Super Bowl rings, and we don't like that here in Pittsburgh. Uh, we take pride in the fact that our Steelers were the first franchise to reach that, that uh, threshold of six Super Bowl titles. And this one guy has more than our entire city. Now, talk about Brady for any length of time with the Pittsburgher, and that conversation, I guarantee you, is bound to get to the cheating scandal of Spygate. There are Steelers fans that I talk to that still insist that the 2004 AFC Championship game was stolen from them or stolen from us because of the Patriots cheating. Brady is labeled as a cheater, and I think the reason that we do so is it's to devalue his accomplishments, to give Steeler fans an excuse to feel like we should really, we should still be on top with six titles. Some of those titles are invalid, if you will. Now, all of those behaviors, whether it's my resentment to undercutting Brady's accomplishments, they are classic symptoms of the sin of envy. Whether we would care to admit it or not, it's very typical for us to view life like a zero-sum game. Zero-sum game means that in the end, your equation has to balance out. If you have a plus two here, you need to have a minus two here. That there are winners and there are losers. And so our desire is to make sure that we stay far enough ahead of the cut so that in our psyche, we feel that we are valuable. Now, this isn't anything new to our culture. There are plenty of biblical examples in the scriptures of envy. Take Luke twenty-two twenty-four, which occurs immediately after the institution of the Lord's Supper. Right? One of the greatest symbols of the church, to the church, of Christ's sacrifice. And check out what the disciples are debating. Luke twenty-two twenty-four, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. We all want to live in the world where we're number one. Shakespeare may have said, heavy is the head that wears the crown, but we'd welcome the opportunity to shine in the spotlight, even if it was just for a little bit. You could go to example after example in Scripture. There is nothing new under the sun. Cain is envious of Abel. Jacob and Esau are envious of one another. They wanted what the other person had. Joseph's brothers are envious of the attention their father pays to him. Adam and Eve are disgruntled with God and have this envious desire for knowledge as they succumb to the temptation of the serpent. Envy seems to be this feeling 
we experience any time that we feel diminished or we feel that we're in the shadow of someone else. Now, before I get too far into defining envy and giving some examples, I want to clarify that envy is not the same thing as jealousy. We often use those words synonymously, but they are a bit different. Envy is focused on something that someone else has that we don't. And so we desire that object, that identity, whatever it might be. Jealousy, by contrast, is a focus on something that we possess, that we love, that might be taken away from us. Jealousy seeks to protect that which is already in our possession. And there's plenty of negative examples of jealousy, but jealousy can be good. In Deuteronomy, among other places in Scripture, God is often described as a jealous God. God is jealous because he loves us deeply and he doesn't want us running after these false idols that aren't any good for us. And I just want to make sure that I create this this point that jealousy and envy are not the same thing because, you know, as we talk about the negative traits of envy, I want to ensure that we're not like applying those things to God because he's described in the scriptures as jealous. Now, plain and simple, envy is the dissatisfaction that we might have in our place in God's order. It's when we see status, health, possessions, right? Something someone else has that we want for ourselves. In the words of Jeff Cook, envy rejects the good life that God gives me and obsesses over what he, God has given to someone else. We envy all kinds of things, objects or accomplishments. Now, in fairness, I joked about being envious of Tom Brady at the start of this message, but in truth, envy, as you typically find it in your life, usually happens with those who are in close proximity to us, whether that be a nearness geographically, or those in like the same line of work as us, or those who are in like a similar income tax bracket. Envy preoccupies itself in the proximity of that object. The object of envy must be close enough that we feel like we could reasonably attain it, right? that, that we could reasonably consider the person that we're envious of as, an, as a rival. At least that's when envy is most subversive and hard to see in our lives. Right? We might be envious of Tom Brady, or we might be envious of you know, the status of the Kardashians, but the reality is we know that their lifestyles are so far out of our reach that we'd never be able to con- compete with their level of success or fame. But for those who are close to us, we can be envious of just about anything. We envy the homes of others. We envy the vacations that other families go on or the vacations they can afford. Maybe we look at the large credit card debt that we have accrued and are envious of those who live without debt. We're envious of those families who seem to have it all together, Right? Their family doesn't seem to have issues like we're so profoundly aware of in our own situation. Because the truth is there will always be someone smarter, wealthier, better looking, more successful than us. I saw this very uh, apparently in my life in high school. Many of you know that I love soccer. I've, I've coached Elizabeth's team for the last five years. And I've always enjoyed the game of soccer. 
In high school, my, my soccer talent provided me the starting position of sitting on the bench. Game after game, I was lucky to get five minutes of playing time in, a game, in any game that resort, uh, uh, resembled anything meaningful. I remember being angry with God. Like, why didn't he give me more talent? Why didn't he give me, I weighed 100, I was six foot and weighed 135 pounds. Why didn't he give me more athletic physique so that I could be a starter or at least be like that first man off the bench? And this was exacerbated because as a senior, I was, the, I was the only senior on the team who didn't drink alcohol, who didn't smoke weed, right? And so now here I am as a high school student hurling this moral component at God, right? that these heathens, as, as I judge them, that they had received God's grace of talent, and here I was struggling, striving after God and felt like he couldn't give me, he couldn't throw me a bone, you know? In hindsight, my, my perspective is, is very well represented in Scripture by the older brother in the story of the prodigal son, where we don't count the blessings that God has given us, but we chase after those blessings that he's given someone else. I was envious of my teammates. I wanted their talent. In truth, I, wanted to, I, I longed to feel like I be- belonged in their social circles. I was dissatisfied with the life that God had given me in that moment. And I regularly cried Envy's three favorite words. I love this. Why not me? That's what Envy loves to cry. Why not me? Now, I'm sure I don't have to give you all too many examples to start recognizing the seeds of envy in your own life. We live in a digital age where social media consumes so much of life. Social media is built on the backs of envy. The desert father of Agrius linked envy with sadness. And with this label, he described the sorrowful feeling that when it seems like everyone else is living a better life than what we're living, and that it often leaves us feeling unworthy and depressed. This is precisely what social media cultivates in us, a feeling of deficiency. Social media provides a context where highly curated and edited photos or sound bites give the impression of the joyful experience of life that someone else has, beyond what's actually true. It skews our perspective to make us think that we are missing out on everything. Is it any wonder that study after study continuously showcases that people, when they give up social media, they report greater satisfaction with their life? Now, I'm not saying that you have to delete Twitter or Instagram. But I am saying, I think maybe you should consider the hold that it has on you. Full disclosure, these companies are profiting off of algorithms that promote your misery. Again, there's, I haven't read The Social Network. I've heard that one is, uh, no, it's not The Social Network. I don't know. There's a Netflix documentary that I know talks about this, uh, and there's studies all over the place that, that share this, how these are the algorithms that we are getting what these algorithms were designed to give us. Theodore Roosevelt said that that comparison is the thief of joy. And he he was right. There's a story that Jesus tells in Matthew 20. This is Matthew 20, verses 1 to 16. And Jesus shares this story to demonstrate humanity's natural inclination towards comparison and how it poisons our perspectives. In the story, 
there's a master of a vineyard. And he, he went out to the local unemployment office to hire some laborers to work his fields. And he told them he's going to give them $100 to work a 10-hour day. The workers, not having any other work, said, this seems reasonable. That sounds good. I'll do it. And the master returned a couple hours later back to that unemployment office and found some more laborers and promised to pay them whatever he felt was right. About an hour before quitting time, the master went back again and found a handful more standing about, and he gave them work in his vineyard. Now, at the end of the day, the master starts paying those who only worked a few hours first, paid them in reverse, and he gave them a hundred bucks. Now, the workers, you can probably imagine where they went, where their minds went. The workers who had been there all day saw this, and they started to calculate in their minds, all right, well, if they only worked these few hours and got this much, and I worked this many hours, man, what am I going to get when I collect my check? But when it was their turn, they only received $100. They're highly disappointed. They start to grumble at the master, and he challenges them. He says, isn't 100 bucks what we agreed upon? Isn't that what I told you I was going to pay you? And you seemed content with that. Verse 15 then kind of closes the story out. In the NIV, it says this. The master says, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or are you envious because I am generous. But that translation, and even the ESV I think is worse, personally, that doesn't really get to the heart of the matter. What the Greek literally reads is, is your eye evil because I am good? There's this envy, this, this window of our eyes to see what someone else got and desire it. Envy in the story takes what was previously agreed upon and makes us, leaves us, when we start to see that discontent with it. But it isn't like this is an amoral position. Right? The tendency towards this kind of comparison is called evil by the Lord. Of the seven deadly sins that we've been going through, envy is the only one that is explicitly forbidden in the list of, ten, of the Ten Commandments. Right, the final commandment in Exodus 20, 17 says that we should not covet any of our neighbor's assets, their house, their spouse, their car, whatever it might be, that it is dissatisfaction. It's kind of what the unspoken alignment of that is. It's dissatisfaction with the hand that God has dealt us. H.L. Mencken, who was an American journalist in the early 20th century, put it this way. He said, in America, contentment is making $10 a month more than your brother-in-law. Right? I've just got to edge out. I've just got to make a little bit more so I can be top dog. Now, this guy was a huge fan of Nietzsche. He was very anti-religious, and so this is not coming from the mouth of the faithful. But even in his candid quote, it showcases how fickle we are. Our perspective of contentment is wholly dependent upon our perspective of the success of others. Aquinas, who regularly wrote about the seven deadly sins, he put envy as a vice of the will, much like the virtue of love. And we talked a little bit about this last week when we focused on sloth. And there's some similarities between the two. Somewhat superficially, sloth undermines our love of God through laziness and distraction. That's what I, I talked about last week. Envy, on the other hand, undermines our love for our neighbor. So let's dive in a little bit more, look at some of the effects of envy in our lives. When we are envious, 
Envy does not rejoice with those who rejoice, at least not wholeheartedly. Maybe you put a little facade to act like you're happy, but deep down you know you're not. Rebecca DeYoung says, in envy we chafe at another person's good simply because their goodness makes ours pale in comparison. Think about the story of Rachel and Leah in the scripture in Genesis. You know, through some trickery of their father and a society that treated women more as social objects than people, both sisters end up married to the same man, Jacob. And from the beginning, before they even got married, Jacob was in love with Rachel. But his, father, his father-in-law tricked him to marry the older sister Leah first. So here we have Leah, unloved by Jacob. But she was able to provide a currency that in that culture every man dreamed of, sons to continue the family line. Leah had sons, and Rachel was barren. Each were envious of the goods of the other. Leah wanted the love, Leah wanted, not Leah, this isn't Star Wars, Leah wanted the love of Jacob that Rachel had. But Rachel wanted the children that Leah had. And the envious in this situation do not believe that they are worthy of being loved fully or unconditionally. Rachel had Jacob's love, but felt that in order to fully prove herself, she had to provide a a son, a descendant. Each felt that they had to prove something, and they were embittered against their sister. And a sibling, the sibling feud got to a point where Rachel, in a desperate attempt to get children through her maidservant, Bilhah, at Jacob, so that Rachel could hear the pitter-patter of little feet in her tent through her servant. I mean, talk about a messed-up situation. The vice of envy lets sin take root in a family rivalry that was felt for generations. Envy makes us do things that we wouldn't do under normal circumstances. Envy does not rejoice with those who rejoice, and it negatively reveals itself in that German concept of schadenfreude taking joy at the misfortune of others. And this is one of the nastier sides of envy, where we wish trauma and tragedy upon others who are the object of our envy. Maybe we feel a little embarrassed about it, but again, deep down, we kind of relish whenever something doesn't go their way. And this is so pervasive. I mean, think about, why is there such traction for salacious news stories? Right, the clickbait articles that you see spread on social media sensational headlines that allure us to read whatever tragedy has befallen a certain celebrity or well-known figure. I mean, think about it. I, I remember this is going back history a little bit, but just the, the public relish of the fall of Tiger Woods. Or when Martha Stewart was caught insider trading and went to prison. We drink up the misery of others to make ourselves feel better. Lord, help us. We are a broken people. In extreme cases, the envious look to directly destroy the rival. I think of Scar in the Lion King. Murders his brother, frames his nephew so that he could have that coveted throne, the Pride Lands. Maybe a better example, Syndrome from the movie The Incredibles. As a child, this child, Buddy, he idolized the supers, these, these figures with superpowers. He wanted to be just like them. He's an inventor, so he invents something to kind of rocket boots and stuff to make him seem like he could, he could run with the pack. And he tries to help Mr. Incredible stop a crime, and the hero chastises him, and it crushes his self-esteem and his self-worth. 
but he is heartbroken. And that envy sows a seed in his heart. It directs his life's work to basically destroy the supers. Buddy's drive is to be someone special, that he would matter, and that directly came from his envy of the powers that others had and he didn't and made him feel average or less than average. Right? He goes so far to resort to murder and even attempts to, cap, to kidnap Mr. and Mrs. Incredible's baby. Right? His envy skewed his perception so much that he, he's ready to commit some felonies up in there. Again, nothing new under the sun. This fits with what the Bible tells us about envy. James writes in his letter, James chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet, you're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Right? Envy is a key part in that process, that escalation of seed taking root and growing into fights, quarreling, even murder, the scripture says. Now, we might not go to quite those extreme lengths, but envy, I would suggest, humbly suggest, that has, envy has permeated our lives that it's directed the ways in which we love or don't love our neighbors. Right? The seeds of envy might lead you to gossip about your coworker. Right? Have some salacious stories of your own of what's going on behind the scenes. Or slander, say unkind things about that high school teacher that you feel like doesn't like you very much. You see it in your relationship with your friends. You make really passive-aggressive comments to them, right? When they're facing you, you're all smiles, but as soon as they turn their back on you, you pull out that proverbial knife. It might manifest itself in teasing, right? How many, how many times has there been, have you experienced, either as the one, you know, as the bully or the, the, the recipient of this, right, where you're teasing someone, and then you strike a nerve, and you're like, oh, I was just kidding. Really, was it just that we were joking around, or was there a little edge to that with intentionality? Right? We're, we're slowly trying to cut them down if they're standing just a bit higher than us. Frederick Buchner said that if you cannot rise, then you work to level the playing field. Envy is the root of so much conflict and discord. And those who struggle with it rarely look inward to see ourselves as part of the problem. Right? We find someone else, someone someone or something external to blame for our unhappiness. Maybe it's fate or God that we feel that we've been dealt a raw, bad hand. If I only had this thing that someone else had, then I'd be happy. Or if only this person loved me more, then life would run smoothly. Envy poisons our heart and it steals our joy. Right? Is it any wonder? Does anyone know what color is associated with envy? Would you say? Green, green, there's this association of the color green because envy is a sickness in us. None of us want to be envious. It does not feel good to be envious. Socrates called envy the ulcer of the soul. I've never had an ulcer, but I've heard that they're very miserable to have. Rebecca de Young put it this way. In short, the envious resents God, feel bitter towards others, and condemn themselves to a hell of their own making already on earth. 
This is the problem with envy, especially as you compare it to the other vices. We don't receive any pleasure from it. Gluttony, lust, greed, right? They're all tied to this unadulterated pursuit of pleasure. We might be sinning, but at least it feels good in the moment. That's not the case with envy. It does not feel good. So how do we break out of its grip? Historically, the virtue that has been viewed as a response or an antidote to envy is neighborly love or kindness. Remember how I compared those uh, vices of envy and sloth. Sloth is a failure to love God rightly. Envy reveals in our hearts a failure to love our neighbor. Now, while there might be a possession or a status, there might be something external, an object that is the, 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 uh, the focus of that envy, it usually manifests itself in spite towards our neighbor when we turn it externally. Or, self-loathing when we turn it inwardly. Paul has his famous passage on love that comes in 1 Corinthians 13, and he says this. He says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. So when we are operating out of envy, we are not operating out of the love that God calls us for our neighbor. Envy is one of those characteristics that is seen as the antithesis of love. Because when we envy, we do not reflect God. To be envious of our neighbor provides the opportunity for unkindness, what the Bible would call hate, the opposite of love. Aquinas, again, I've mentioned him a few times. He argued that to envy or hate our neighbor is an offense against God. He equates it with hating God himself. Now, the truth is we're not going to be able to just manufacture these positive feelings for others, especially those who for such a long time we've considered someone as our rival. We can't just will ourselves to do it. But like the bulk of spiritual formation, it isn't in our power to work this transformation in ourselves. We need some divine intervention to see this change take root in our lives. So I can't give you like the five steps to to break envy from your life. But what I can direct you to is a suggestion of where to start. Where in your life to start. When we are envious of someone or something, even if in the end we get what we want, it's not stable. We're not going to have that sense of unconditional self-worth out of it. We might finally acquire that object or that status that we've been fixated on, but give it, give it some time there's just going to be another outlet of insecurity. Your neighbor gets a new car. Your classmate gets a better grade on the test than you do. When our perspective is that our worth is based upon merit, then something that we can try to control, then we are going to fight and claw to attain those accolades. But the truth is those accolades are going to fail us time and time again. So what I suggest to you is what we need is a new and better foundation of self-worth. Not one that if you just can get this thing, then you're valuable but a foundation that goes deeper than that. I'd encourage you to meditate and dwell on the love that God has for you. A love that is not based upon what you do, but who God is shaping you to be. Remember, I, I alluded to this at the beginning. Remember the baptism of Jesus. 
This is how the Gospel of Mark basically starts. Jesus going to be baptized by John, John the Baptist. And as he comes out of the water, there's this booming voice, this is my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. God the Father is clearly expressing his love to the Son, to Jesus Christ. But note, Jesus had not yet done anything. He hadn't been tempted by Satan. He hadn't worked any recorded miracles. He hadn't even begun his earthly ministry. The proclamation of love comes before any of the stuff that Jesus did. Listen to the words of of God to the people of Israel. Now, the New Testament uh, informs us that we as the church are part of the spiritual descendants of Israel, right? We've been grafted into that. So I'm going to say that these words apply to us as well. This is Isaiah 43, verses 1 through 4. This, This is God's words to you. But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, O church, He who formed you, O Israel, O people, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, and you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flames shall not consume you. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. God loves you. When you fix your heart and your mind on this truth, it changes so much in our lives. Instead of needing to be responsible for my own sense of self-worth, I can go back to that message playing over and over again in my mind that God is pleased with me through Jesus Christ. God is pleased with me through Jesus Christ. I don't have anything to prove. I don't need to acquire certain possessions. I don't need to reach a certain income bracket to make it, to be valuable. God says that I'm valuable right now. What that does for us is it gives us margin to accept the good that God has given to others without us feeling threatened. It frees us up to rejoice over the good of our neighbor instead of being drawn into the path of envy where we're grieved by it. God's love is that which heals that ulcer of the soul, and it allows us to, it sets us free to rejoice with others who rejoice. And this is going to take time for us to get there, But I want to encourage you, there is hope for healing for our souls. Now, as we consider the place of envy in our lives, I want to give you some reflection questions to go on this week. And as I have been, I'll post them on Facebook tomorrow. And I'd encourage you to sit with them, pray over them, invite God to reveal to you the truth of how you would align with them. So here we go. Here's the first one. Whom... Do you envy? I don't know if that's right grammar. Whom do you envy? When you notice that, that object, w- figure out what's the next logical question. What does this reveal about what you value about or in yourself? Who do you envy and what does it reveal 
about where you place your value. Secondly, think about someone who's helped you along the path of faith, who's developed your gifts and virtues. Maybe it's not faith, maybe it's even in the workplace. Why is your attitude towards them admiration and not envy? And lastly, what is blocking you from fully seeing the unconditional love that God has for you in Jesus Christ? Because oftentimes there's, we'll put little disclaimers. Like I know, like intellectually, I often say that the, the hardest journey to go is from up here to down here, right? The whatever that is, foot, foot and a half. Right? I know that God loves me, but I don't always live as if that's true. So what, what's the barrier? What's the blockage in that path for you to see? Join me in prayer. Lord, we love you, and we need just another dispensation of that, that understanding of your deep love for us. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, that you demonstrated your love in this way. Lord, that you meet us where we are, not where you hope that we will go. Lord, you are not content to leave us as we are, but you walk with us through life. May those truths, that, that foundation in us, cultivate a kindness that is overflowing. Lord, as we sit in, in, and are filled by your love, may our cup overflow that we might love our neighbor better. That we would not be threatened by accolades or earnings of others, but that we would be able to rejoice in spirit and truth with those who rejoice. May we be content in the life that you've given us here and now. In Jesus Christ we pray, amen.